Thank you for downloading another episode of the Trap One Podcast. Today, we are going to go behind the scenes as to what it is like to make a podcast. We are going to talk about a very, very recent publication, the 1972 Doctor Who Making of Annual, which has recently been given the deluxe treatment by BBC Audio and has been released as an audiobook novelization, even though it is not a novelization. Joining me today to discuss this unique Doctor Who audio release is three quarters of the famous Trap One Audio's annual panel. Guys, please introduce yourselves. I'm Sai. I'm Denise. I'm Conrad. And I am not Mark, who is usually the other audio annuals person, but I am Jason in the U.S. coming at you from Brooklyn, New York. So, this is a very, very interesting audio release. I never actually owned the making of book back in the day. I do remember seeing the 1976 edition available in my local bookstore, where I got all my other targets in the mid-1980s. But I was more interested in buying the fiction books, the novelizations based on TV episodes, and I didn't focus quite so much on the non-fiction material that was available at the time. I do vividly remember picking up the 1976 Making of Edition, and I was fascinated by the story breakdowns for Robot Serial 4A because the cliffhanger to Part 2, as printed in the book, is not (laughs) the same cliffhanger as aired for Part 2 on television which was kind of my first clue that the going-ons behind the scenes of 1970s Doctor Who was a lot more chaotic than it appeared on television. For you guys, I'll start with Cy and then work my way around the table. Denise and Conrad, did you ever own the making of volume, either the 1972 original or the 1976 version that I saw and declined to buy in my neighborhood bookstore? The boys have got both. Of course they've got both. Come on. Of course. I is holding up both copies. Mm-hmm. Um, so the 1976 edition I originally borrowed from um, the Central Library in Bracknell, where I grew up, and um, borrowed that several times and read that through, and then eventually got myself a second-hand copy. And then many, many years later, I got myself a copy of the original one, um, which um, still says in the front, two pounds, pictures missing so i think it was a bit of a bargain despite that so um despite the pictures being missing it's very interesting to sort of compare and contrast the two editions so um the malcolm hulk and terence dix edition of the first one um compared to the terence dix and malcolm hulk edition of the second one um there's lots of interesting differences which i think we can tell sort of through a lot of the audio on this one and i should point out i was remiss in not pointing this out earlier the audiobook release is kind of a mashup of the 1972 and 1976 editions it does not go in book order for either book and it sort of dips back and forth to both and it's leaving out some pretty significant chunks of the 1976 rewrite and the cover to the cd release is actually the cover i think to the doctor who and the monsters book Mm mm-hmm yeah, which I think Conrad has opinions about. Well, I was just a bit confused. Uh, I, 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 was, I was just many disappointed. That probably means we're not getting a Doctor Who monster book on audio, which I really, that's what I would have really liked. But yeah. 
so Denise, and then I'll come back to Conrad. Did you have either the 1972 or the 1976 or the Monsters book? Well, I have the 1980 reprint of the 1976 version, um, which. But I didn't get it until 1983, probably in a jumble sale or a charity shop or something, by which time, of course, it's been supplanted by the episode guides. So, you know, it was very much a historical document, a relic, if you will. And so I read it out of interest, but uh, it had already been supplanted by the time I got my little pause on it. So. So now three of us are holding up the 1976 edition. I have a first edition of the 1976 book, which I bought for $3 American at uh, Gallifrey One in 2020, right before the pandemic. Mm, bargain. Which kept me very busy reading during the pandemic itself, when we all found ourselves with a lot of unexpected <laughs> spare time on our hands. And finally, Conrad, my man, when did you first see this and what are your thoughts about the Monsters book? I first saw the 76 making of because I was five years old and my big sister had it. Um, so this was the first book I saw, sort of factual thing about Doctor Who I, I sort of ever saw. Although I think when we reviewed the Amazing World of Doctor Who annual, that was the first annual that started to do little features about the monsters and things. So... Yeah, this is um this brings back memory. All of these black and white pictures in the in the middle of the book, I absolutely remember every single one of these pictures and being fascinated that there were other doctors apart from you know, Tom Baker, um, and then I eventually got the nineteen seventy two version later, second hand, um, and the Doctor Who Monster books. I had the, I think I had the, I actually think I got the Monster books actually quite late. Um, they're very me, they're very my era, but I think I got them quite late. I love them. I've got one of the covers framed downstairs because obviously my era, Tom Baker and a montage of monsters. But yeah, um, yeah, I got. I was there at the time when it was out and, and got it when I was a kid. But like I said, my sister got it. I wouldn't have been reading it. I'd have just been looking in the pictures. And to be honest, nothing's changed. <laughs> now, I do have a PDF of the 1972 edition thanks to a friend of this podcast jim sangster but it was very helpful to have the pdf of the 1972 edition listening to the recent audio release so i could go back and pinpoint which tracks came from which book and the photographs are different in the books too i would say the photographs in 1972 cover pretty much the run of televised doctor who up till that point seasons one through nine Whereas the 1976 book mostly has photos from the Tom Baker era, including from stories that would have been brand spanking new at the time the book came out, including Pyramids of Mars and Seeds of Death, as well as Brain of Morbius, and a photograph of the mind-bending equipment that might well have inspired a young Chris Chibnall to write <laughs> fanfic about this picture. <laughs> Yeah, they're great. The, the photo, the, the black and white photos in the '76 one, just take me back. I, I, I don't know. They, they're, um, yeah, they're, they're one of the first reference materials. Apart from all the free little cards I'd get, like Typhoon and Weetabix, which um, this was one of the first times I actually saw the stuff in a book. So it's, it's great. Always loved the picture of Tom surrounded by the kids asking for his autograph. That's yeah. so. That's that's the one that I remember from this book. 
Now, based on the coat that he's wearing, was this probably taken on location for Android Invasion? Because it seems to be the same village and the same coat. Yeah, it's the yeah, definitely. I want to point you guys' attention, and since all four of us have the 1976 books in our hands, the very last photograph on the bottom of the insert opposite page 81, I'll describe this for our uh, audio-only audience. This is a publicity photo taken from the Seeds of Doom. It is uh, the full-size crinoid prop seen in part four's cliffhanger, but it's taken in broad daylight, whereas the cliffhanger takes place at night. It's got Tom Baker holding up a sword, and behind him is Elizabeth Sladen giving perhaps the greatest facial expression in the history of photography. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> so good. It's giving her all, even for the photographs. That's amazing. Do you know what that actually that that I actually had a closer look at that picture earlier today because it caught my eye, and I was like, "What is Liz Sladen doing?" And I was looking like going, just imagining. A photographer going, go on, love, look scared, come on, do this. And she just reacts brilliantly. So it's funny that you mentioned that because that picture caught my attention earlier. It's from the 1930s movie serials, The Perils of Pauline, or for those of us <laughs> who grew up in the 70s, the cartoon version, The Perils of Penelope Pitstop. It, it, it is the quintessential, eek, you dastardly fiend facial expression. Mm. It is the greatest thing I've ever seen. Perfect. This <laughs> Layton, always perfection. Yes. The key yeah. to having a successful book is to have a picture of Elizabeth Sladen in it. That's my new uh, life's motto. <laughs> no arguments here. Well, she's looking pretty cute in the picture outside the TARDIS as well. On the, uh... They look really happy in that picture, both of them. It's lovely. Yeah. Lovely to see Liz. The other Seeds of Doom photo is uh, yeah, it's taken from the very last scene in part six and Liz is giving another knowing glance just off camera well the TARDIS roof is probably about to throw on <laughs> fall down on her head at that <laughs> point so <laughs> that's the very last surviving photo of the original TARDIS mm -hmm. prop which imploded <laughs> seconds <laughs> after the photograph was taken so let's talk then about the audio book range generally I don't know if we've been covering a lot of the novelization audio books here on Trap One. I have interviewed Michael Stevens, the executive producer of The Range, for a special bonus episode of Doctor Who Literature that I am not allowed to air yet, that will probably be coming out in about six months or so as we record this in the summer of 2023. He is just an amazing guy, and talking to him was a delight. The work that he and BBC Audio have been doing on these novelization audiobooks is just one of the high points of being a Doctor Who fan in 2023. And that's pretty high praise because this year we are getting two new Doctors, we are getting R2D back, we are getting some pretty high-profile guest stars, we are getting the return of Bonnie Langford. So there's a lot of competition. But the audiobooks in general are killing it. So going around the table again, Cy, Denise, Conrad, when did you first encounter the audiobook novelization range? And for you, what are some of the high points of that series? Well, I have followed it from the very beginning. So um, I bought my, my ex-partner the tin with the, three, um, with the three original Target books in them, read by William Russell, and absolutely adored them and have followed it all the way through. Um, only last week, I listened to um, 
the Romans, which is as far as I've got up to at the moment, which was a book that I hated as a child and absolutely <laughs> adored as an adult. And like the making of Doctor Who, that was read by multiple readers, which I think really, really made it. I, for years, I've said that this is my favourite um, range of audios that um, have been done, and I've adored almost every single um, release that they've they've done so far, even the Terence Dudley ones, <laughs> which have been a struggle at times. <laughs> And it's actually many of the same narrators between the Romans and making of Doctor Who, because you have Louise Jameson, you have Maureen O'Brien, you have John Culshaw. And Dan Starkey. And Dan Starkey. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I just what I've loved about the range has been the some of the obvious choices for reading the books and some of the not obvious choices for reading the books. And everyone who has done one has brought something unique to to their story and it's just been yeah they're just absolute favorite on my commute to work on long car journeys on plane journeys i've listened to them all over the world and adored them take the sci heart audiobook novelization challenge on how many continents can you listen to the novelization <laughs> on cd or mp3 <laughs> I haven't really dipped my toe in that water, to be honest with you. I mean, um, for me, yes, I do listen to audio books and I listen to Missing Adventures on audio, but uh, novelizations, not so much. And uh, I'm sorry if that makes me a bad person, but I I will get around to it on, on your hearty recommendations because uh, they do sound interesting, but I haven't been there yet. See, it doesn't make you a bad person. It makes you a lucky person because it means that you have a lot of incredible listening ahead of you, whereas some of us have been listening to these things for 15, 20 years. We've already heard them. You are going to get to experience them for the first time. I mean, some of the novelizations, I read them so many times as a kid and a teenager that I practically know them by heart anyway. So perhaps, you know, it would be a little bit strange to be hearing them being read to me. But. Yeah, well, I can safely say that I have never listened to a Doctor Who audiobook. And now I'm trying to think about it. I'm struggling to think if I've ever like completely listened to a full audiobook in my life. I don't know. That I have. It's just not something I do. Um, and it's an odd thing to say, but there we have it. I noticed on Denise's shelf, I'm admiring, Denise has got a new setup, which we're now calling the Den Cave. And the first thing I spotted was a little <laughs> cas- cassette uh, of Tom Baker reading State of Decay. Now I can safely and confidently say that the first and possibly only audiobook I've ever heard <laughs> is that one. Yeah, audiobooks just aren't my aren't my thing. I like. I but it's funny hearing Cy talk about it. I was like, do you know what? One day that I can see me like, in the retirement home listening to all of them. Just put. He's like, just put those on, and he's out. Put those earphones on, and that's it. You're done. Mm-hmm. I've I've had my fair share of Doctor audio, uh, audio dramas long you know in life, but um, yeah, audio books not my thing. Jason is surprised and horrified. I have to give a plug for Denise, who was on episode sixty six of Doctor Who Literature, where we discussed State of Decay, including that self same audio cassette. Brilliant. I will tell you my origin story. Um, 
I had listened to audiobooks over the years when I was completely flat broke in law school. I was in the public library almost on a regular basis because it was a lot cheaper, of course, than buying new books. And I would bring home the James Bond novelization audiobooks and copy them over onto blank cassette tapes so I would still have them after returning them to, li- to the library. So I listened to Casino Royale, Live and Let Die, You Only Live Twice, over and over again. I am not really an audio guy. I can't, I can't just sit there on the couch and listen to the audio. My brain doesn't work that way. I do most of my podcast listening while out running or while washing the dishes or sometimes while driving. Living in New York City, I don't have occasion to drive all that often. But I can't just sit there on the couch and follow audio. It doesn't work for me. I have to be doing something else at the same time. When I moved to Los Angeles in 2007, I immediately renewed my audiobook habit, going to the public library and checking out the classics on audio CD. So I listened to To Kill a Mockingbird, 1984, Stephen King's The Shining, all on audio while living in Los Angeles uh, car culture, driving 36 miles to work and 36 miles back from work in bumper-to-bumper traffic. I would point out that in Los Angeles, bumper-to-bumper traffic drives 60 miles an hour. (laughs) (laughs) When I was living in Los Angeles is when I got the DVD for Doctor Who and the Silurians. came out in the States probably in late 2007, early 2008. So I'm watching that on my DVD player in Los Angeles County and listening to the audio commentary, Carol and John talks about having narrated the audiobook novelization for that story. That was the first time in 2007 or eight that I'd even heard of the range. I had no idea that it existed. I was not obviously on Twitter yet. I was not really as involved with online fandom as I am now. So that took me by surprise. Picture the scene of me pausing the DVD vanishing from the couch in a Jason-shaped cloud of dust, (laughs) running down the hall to my office, because I literally had an office in that apartment, jumping on my then laptop, immediately getting the first three Malcolm Hawk novelization CDs that I could find for sale. So Doctor Who and the Silurians, Doctor Who and the Space War, Doctor Who and the Dinosaur Invasion. I stopped going to the Diamond Bar Public Library, and I stopped taking out the classics on audio CD, and I started listening to Doctor Who on CD for the next three or four months. So I've been a convert to the range for over 15 years now, and I've been able to listen to, as Sai said, that original tin with William Russell doing the three 1960s novelizations. One day I will do a pilgrimage of listening to the books in publication order on audio rather than merely reading them for Doctor Who literature. (laughs) So I think both Conrad and Denise are going to have some great times ahead of them. Excellent. Well, yes. I mean, (laughs) we, I do listen to some audio books when I'm gardening and doing housework and things like that and catch up on my podcasts. But since I can watch the shows or listen to the audio of the shows to listen to the novelization isn't something that's occurred to me. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. I think I'm saying you didn't say it just hasn't even occurred to me to do that. Isn't that funny? Um, but one for the future. Although I do have to be careful. Like I'm, I like to be out and about or doing things when I'm listening to podcasts. Because nowadays, if I sit down, put on some headphones to listen to somebody speaking, I'm asleep within probably three to four minutes. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I'll have to find a way to be on the go. 
see, that's a problem because Conrad, you have told me several times that you listen to Doctor Who literature while in the bathtub. I strongly urge you to not fall asleep <laughs> listening to my voice. Cause of death, drowned listening to Doctor <laughs> Who literature podcast. He went doing <laughs> he went doing what he loved. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Sai, the target range obviously is finite and BBC audio is running out of novelizations that they can adapt. So it stands to reason that they're going to be adapting now some of the auxiliary material mm -hmm. such as the nonfiction. What struck you about this particular audio release and how does it work for you compared to the novelizations? Well, this is, um, yeah, this is an interesting one because obviously myself, Conrad and Denise have done, um, all of the annual um, C um, recent annual um, CDs. This is um, far drier material than um, than those, and this definitely benefited from having the multiple readers because I think if you had one person reading the whole of this to you, I think it would be quite quite tedious. I think having the different people come in with different inflections, different um, different styles of reading, because um, you've got Dan Stockey, who's very matter-of-fact, and is going to read it just like this to you, and this is how he does it. And then you've got John Coleshaw coming in and doing his wonderful impressions of all the people that, when he's reading the biographies of people, Katie Manning doing the, with her deep Time Lord, vo um, Time Lady voice is really magnificent. And Louise Jameson being very matter-of-fact and very, very close to the source material like she always is. I think just having and, and Maureen O'Brien as well on top of that, sort of just, again, quite matter-of-fact. But I think that variety of voices actually made this something a bit better than it might have been. Um, it's one of those books. I think the two books are, are wonderful reads as a child when you're learning about how to make Doctor Who and uh, your your um, just all those facts are going into your head and you're just absorbing the whole thing. Um, but I think maybe as an adult, there's slightly less in these that are um, that's exciting maybe to listen to. And I, I think the fiction is wonderful and you can get swept away with the story, but something that's non-fiction is a bit of a harder sell. Now, you, I think you mentioned everybody except Jeffrey Beavers, I believe. Oh, I forgot Jeffrey. Yes, who, mm -hmm. yes, who as always, makes, makes every, every sentence he reads the most evil, evil thing you've ever heard. <laughs> he gives a masterful performance, pardon the pun. Oh. It's like Mark McManus is in the room with us. <laughs> <laughs> I got to bed around three or four in the morning working on puns for this episode. And because yes. it's nonfiction reference material, doesn't quite lend itself to puns, but I'm getting them in wherever I can. So be warned. Mm -hmm. Denise, mm. so you have not been a regular listener of the novelization range. Hopefully you will be going forward. You are, of course, a regular on the audio annuals panel. How did this particular uh, adaptation work for you? Well, it was a little bit strange. It was nice to listen to, like, the synopsis of all of the stories that had happened so far. That was uh, a good, interesting listen, and I can only imagine 
being a young child or a teenage fan, just absorbing all of that as stories from before you were born being detailed and new information out there. Um, but there's, it was like I was listening to it and some little things would strike me. I mean, obviously, Terence Dix and Malcolm Hulk know, knew exactly what they wanted to do with this. You know, they wanted to give the history of the show, the monsters, the actors, how it was made, the companions, all the rest of it. And they did exactly what they wanted to do. It was a great success. But then there's some little details that strike me that uh, you listening to think, hmm, where the monoids, for example, are described as reptiles. Are they reptiles? Hmm. Uh, never struck me, you know, they're quite hairy for reptiles, aren't they, really? But um, And then there's the other thing that every when Susan is mentioned, um, there's always a bit of a question mark over whether she is actually the doctor's granddaughter. You know, he she called him grandfather and, you know, it's not necessarily the case that they were actually related. And I thought that was maybe something interesting that Terence Dix had in mind. But, uh... And that was very influential in the 1990s because the new adventures went to, at sometimes comical lengths, to establish that Susan was not, in fact, the Doctor's granddaughter. So maybe that whole line of fiction came out of this book right here. Mm. I mean, it would have been very weird. I think we talked about this in the season two box set. Would have been very weird if the Doctor had indeed insisted that she stay behind with David Campbell if they weren't even the same species, you know, not a lot was going to happen there. <laughs> well, maybe she was a reptile too. <laughs> maybe she was. So, yeah, I liked it. Interesting to read it. And from the historical perspective, it was great. And Katie Manning was an absolute trooper, very enthusiastic. But it's not as much fun as one of the annuals, as you say. So, Conrad, turning over to you, the audiobook is, as I indicated earlier, sort of a mashup of the 1972 and the 1976 book. Uh, the audio as a whole basically contains three different types of writing it is a history of Doctor Who. It is a making of how to make television instruction manual, but it's written for children. And then lastly, it contains fictional elements, including in-universe memorandums from the Time Lords and the Brigadier describing the various adventures of the first, second, and third Doctors. That last material, the fictional stuff, the Time Lord trial archives and the Brigadier's memos is not included in 1976. 1976 replaces that with a straight-up episode guide, which is not adapted for audio. They chose to go with the uh, more creative fictionalized material rather than just having somebody read the program guide out at you. But for you... Was this material, how to make television, the instructional stuff, was that influential on you at all? Um, I think the 
I think for like just to take your point, um, the 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 bit that's fictionalized, um, the fictional sort of strand of this, that works really well on audio. It's just very very clear. It just comes to life. The actors come to life, and it just really switches on when that happens. And when it's the history or making of of sections, it as lovely as and familiar as those voices are, it just doesn't hold your interest it just goes very flat and then if there's a, a memo to be read a memo from the brigadier or you know high council of the time lords moment you it's very switched on again so i feel quite i feel very mixed about this uh this this release i, I like i said i think the dramatized bits work and the rest just doesn't i think just doesn't work on audio um in terms of the production how to make a tv series and being influential one thing that struck me digging these books out again are just how unbelievably educational, packed, dense, concise, written for children. It's kind of like, like the first book is like nine years, only nine years into making this television series. And it's like they've sat down and there was an, if there was an, a secret mission or a, an agenda or a manifesto to ensure that future children will know how to make the programme, it is, there's everything you need you know, teaching you what a director is, what a script is actual sort of like scripts that you can see and floor plans of studios the detail is unbelievable um so i think they're absolutely incredible as books um it just doesn't quite translate as well to the audio is what i felt i it's a really good point about how this is an incredible making of manual because so many driving forces in the british tv industry got started as Doctor Who fans, and it's easy to imagine that if you were to travel back to the 1970s and visit the childhood bedrooms of a Russell T. Davies or a Stephen Moffat or a Chris Chibnall, this book probably loomed large in their childhoods and might well have said, hmm, these are not just stories that I watch on Saturday tea time. This is an actual process in a career. I could actually have one of these jobs in the studio making the show. Oh, for sure. I, I think this is... um. This is one of the the wonderful things about Doctor Who is that because the series was documented like this from such an early point, it wasn't just a fictional universe. It was a creative universe as well. And I think it inspired a whole generation of fans to work their way up to be writers or directors or set designers or, or be creative around the show as much as it it was about the story of um, the fictional universe. And I think maybe sometimes now that boundary has, has gone the other way and we're not the next, although there's still a lot of creativity. I wonder if there's still that same wanted to do it. Uh, Although maybe I'm wrong. Maybe actually Doctor Who Confidential will have inspired the next generation to come up and and do these things in the same way these books did for for other people. Yeah, I think like Doctor Who is is it's it's one of the only programs that always comes with an instruction manual of how to do it, of how to make it. I think that's just incredible. Like it's it, it's the it's always had an element beside it which you know, you make the program and then there's always the means of production next to it you know it's um it's always shown you it's always come with a how-to kit um it, it's it's quite incredible and it's it's so these books are so striking in just the detail and how they're explaining you know you could 
give that kid a handbook and say, go on, have a go at making a program and they'd have a go at it or they'd know what elements are in place. And I, I think the influence of these, especially on, you know, most of the people that, that brought it back from 2005, 90% of them would have read this, the writers and everything would have done. So I think the, the influence of this is can, sort of can't be overestimated, really. And it wasn't adapted for audio. They chose to go with the fictionalized material from 1972. But the heart of the 1976 book is Chapter 10, The Adventures of Doctor Who, a complete chronological summary of the Doctor Who adventures. Asterisk. A couple of things of note about the sequence. Number one, there was a big debate in the 1990s as to what some of the Hartnell serials were called. And there were different camps between the discontinuity guide versus the how stammers walker handbooks as to what you would call serial a serial b serial c serial w this is the original this is the great granddaddy of program guides and it has some different episode titles than we were debating in the 1990s so they call serial b the dead planet there's the french revolution yes the french revolution instead of what we now call the reign of terror but the massacre, which in the 1990s people were calling the Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve, which doesn't make any sense. Here it's just plain old the massacre. Thank goodness. So, Denise, would this have been the first Doctor Who program guide that you saw? No, because by that point I'd already seen and devoured the Jean-Marc L'Officier program guides you know, and um, read them repeatedly, probably quite obsessively. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so no, it wasn't. But uh, I didn't get my paws on it until 1983. So, It's interesting to see how I had a quick scroll through TARDIS Wiki of the reference books. So you can just have a quick sort of look at how it how the reference books came back and for the first few decades like the first ever reference book i think it was 965 the dalek pocketbook and space traveler's guide um in the 70s i think you got there were six books there was the making of uh, the, the both making of so 72 and 76 two monster books and then in 1979 you had terry nations dalek special and the adventures of k9 books which size got there and, and the ratio is sort of there's a lot of, you know, kid stuff and all Daleks and robots and stuff. And there's also making of. But then flicking through the 80s, right on cue, the first story is A Day with TV producer, John Nathan Turner. And then the next year, it's the program guides. Um, and then making of a television series, unfolding text, all the Peter Haining. And so you, you can see the audience growing up. And the ratio in the 80s is like very few monster books in fact the ones there are like david banks's cybermen book and stuff so it's mm. very it's completely changed to the audience it's in but it's it's a note it's just interesting to note that the references reference book grew up with the audience and then obviously people who've grown up in the 90s and 2000s will have their own thing and then you but then we're into the world of the internet and so everything just reference changes a lot but it's just interesting to see how it's evolved over the years in the 1972 version, which I have on PDF, there was also, it wasn't quite a program guide, but it went by serial, it went by story code from A through whatever the Sea Devils was, and it talked about who made these stories. So it gave complete personnel lists of writers, directors, etc. 
So on page 65 of the 1972 book is The People Who Made Doctor Who. And this is really funny, but this does not get adapted for audiobook. All serials in the Doctor Who series have a code letter. Occasionally, a letter is not used if it might sound confusing or funny. E.g., there is no serial I-I-I. Makes you sound a rather egotistical young lady. <laughs> Four points, Denise. Denise can go home early. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> Denise wins the episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it gives you right there, without giving you the story name, it gives you the story code, the writer's... Uh, the directors, and then on the right-hand side is the enemies, telling you who are the bad guys in each story. And some of these are hilarious, because in Serial D, the enemy is the warlord Nogai, who's not even a character on screen in Marco Polo. The bad guy is Tigana. My favorite one is um, the enemy in um, The Edge of Destruction is space. (laughs) my, My favorite is Serial G. The enemies, disease that was killing the censorites. <laughs> uh, serial AA, the villain is Jano, an advanced cannibal, which is a pretty interesting descri- description of uh, Frederick Yeager's character. <laughs> and that goes through serial LLL, uh, the master and the sea devils are the bad guys. So we've talked a little bit about the three different components of the audiobook. You have the Doctor Who universe, the story of Doctor Who. You have the story of the making of Doctor Who. And then you have the fiction segments. Going around the table, which of those three strands work the best for you on audio? I have to say, like Conrad said, I think the fictionalized um, sort of case for the prosecution and the defense of the Doctor um, sort of presented by the Time Lords I think works really well. And again, because you've got the different readers doing different parts of that as well. I think that works really well. But I have to say, I did also enjoy the biographies of the actors who'd been in Doctor Who as well. And I thought those were were really sort of nicely um, sort of put together and and well um, read by by sort of various people as well. So I, I liked those too. I do have a bone to pick with whoever wrote the biography of Patrick Troughton. That appears in both editions. I don't know if that was written by Malcolm Hulk or Terence Dix. But talking about Patrick Troughton, he won a scholarship to go to the Leighton Rallius studio for actors at the John Drew Memorial Theater in Long Island, USA. So as a native who was born on the island, was raised on the island, and is coming to you from the island right now, We don't say in Long Island. You are in a city, you are in a country, but you are on an island. So there's the suburban counties where I grew up, there's Brooklyn and Queens, I'm in Brooklyn right now. So whoever wrote that does not have the appropriate level of familiarity with Long Island. So major demerits there. (laughs) Throws the whole project out the window for me. (laughs) Well, that's it. Just, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there's no coming back from that, is there really? But, uh... So, Denise, what was your favorite of the three sections of the book? Um, I very much enjoyed the um, fictionalized sections. They were really, really nice, particularly the poor brigadier having to report to Geneva on the latest doings of the doctor. I thought that was, <laughs> that was rather nice. But I also, I like 
you know, it's a familiar litany, the sort of history of the companions and things. And um, I didn't know everything from the little potted biographies of the doctors and the actors who played the companions. It was nice to be reminded that uh, John Levine once got fan mail from an entire factory <laughs> because he was so hunky and so handsome back in the day. Um yeah, I liked it. Um, there were some thought-provoking bits um, for me. The idea that the, after the trial of the Doctor, the Time Lords did decide to start interfering a little bit more after all, and they mainly used the Doctor for that. That was... I hadn't thought about it in that way before. But, uh, yeah. I mean, all of the parts have something to offer. The only sort of major fault I think with with this um, audio production is in the two versions of the book there's two diaries of a production and one of them is the sea devils and one of them is the robot and it's pretty much the same story you know lots of repetition of the same kind of information of what happens and you know the poor script writer taking the script on holiday and things like that and uh, so you've got Katie Manning telling you all about the sea devils and then you've got Louise Jameson telling you all about robot and it's quite repetitive but I wouldn't have known which one to cut I wouldn't have wanted to be the person who made that decision although I think Katie's was a bit more enthusiastic because she was actually involved in the story itself that was an interesting editorial choice because the Sea Devils material is only in the 1972 book and then it was replaced with Robot for the 1976 yes, book. Yes, exactly. So they cut out the story code section of the first book. They cut out the program guide section, which is 35 pages of the second book, but they included both making of. So on disc two, you have making of LLL, the Sea Devils, and on disc three, you have the making of Robot 4A. I thought that was an interesting choice, including both. Um, I think I like that material a little more, but I love the point that you make about the tone of the brig of the brigadier's fictionalized memos. He's always apologizing <laughs> for some crazy thing the doctor did in furtherance of a story, like uh, breaking into the naval base in the Sea Devils, for example. <laughs> <laughs> and Conrad, which was your favorite of the various sections of the book? Yeah, I think, because um, like I said, it's very different uh, looking at actual books themselves. Other bits would be my favourites, but on audio, as I said, the, the dramatic bits, again, are the bits that work for me. And I think the trial stuff is fascinating. The idea that you can you know, hear secret memorandums to the, the Time Lords, I think that's fantastic. And similarly with the unit memos written by a slightly... You can tell the exasperation underneath John Coleswell's brigadier when he's trying to explain, <laughs> when he's trying to explain wearily to his superiors what he's been up to and where the, where the unit budget is going. Um, uh, so, so yeah, it's, it's the dramatised bits, which I just think are just just lovely. Um, I think, I just think it's, this is one of the first one of these I've listened to, because we've done the Doctor Who uh, audio annuals and stuff, but I kind of really wondered about this, as in, like, who's this for? I think that was what I was left with, because I was just like, for nostalgia of the books... If you're that nostalgic and you know you grew up with them, you'd probably have the books. Or it would be better off just getting the books because that'll give you everything you need. Perhaps if you didn't want the books and you just wanted to remember the remember these books and have an impression of them, um, I think that would be useful then. For new fans, I'm not sure. Or younger fans, I'm not sure how 
I'm not sure how interesting it would be, but um, yeah, I'm just struggling with. It. I struggle with this one a little bit, I think. But yeah, for, so but for me, the um, the dramatic bit, the dramatic readings, and the performances were were very enjoyable but I just I feel like conceptually this one people need to sit down and maybe think about it and find a different way to do it I think I'm not I'm just not quite convinced I will point out that in the 1976 book which does not have that fictionalized material the copyright page says parts of the material in this new edition appeared in the Doctor Who monster book by Terence Dix Target Books 1975 so this does incorporate pieces of a third book the audio so it has bits of the 72 bits of the 76 and it has bits of and the art is the cover of the monster book which of the three of you have the monster book because that's not that's not one that i have i have the canine and mechanical creatures i got that as a present but i never saw it in the stores and i never owned the monster book yeah so the bit that's um that's been um moved over to the making of doctor who is um terence dix's um who is the doctor essay which i think first appeared in the doctor who monster book and that's the he's never cruel he's never carrot um he's never cowardly um the sort of seminal terence dicks defining what and who the doctor is for a generation and then bits that made it into the tv show sort of year um for the 50th um, when it's sort of stated in the day of the doctor who the doctor is um, it comes right back to that essay. So that's the bit that's taken verbatim from the Doctor Who monster book and is is presented here um, and is a really seminal piece of work by, by Terence Dix. Absolutely gets to the nub of what the Doctor and what Doctor Who is in Terence Dix's eyes. And that's what Doctor Who is for the rest of us because of that. And Denise, I saw you reaching from your shelf. You have the monster book in your hands right now. No, I don't. I, I was wondering if I had it or not. I have Terry Nation's Dalek special, and I have the Adventures of Canine and other mechanical creatures. I but I don't books. have I don't have the monster book. No, I couldn't remember whether I did or not. But uh, sadly, no. <laughs> Yeah, size holding up the monster book cover, that beautiful cover, which mm-hmm. is shared by the making of audio. Sai, come back to us. Sai is now just yeah, gazing sorry, lovingly I'm, into I'm, this I'm book. He literally <laughs> opened the cover. His eyes went over, a huge smile came on his face, and we just lost him. He just went. Sai was gone. He's gone, man. If you want to hear what it sounds like when somebody is reading quietly to themselves, that is what Sai is doing for us right now. Mm-hmm. That was remarkable. Sai! Yes. Oh, back in the room. Back in the room. Wow. <laughs> Put it down. Put it down. <laughs> but no, I mean that that first essay is just one of the defining moments, I think, in Doctor Who literature. It's it's an incredible piece of work. Not to be mistaken for Doctor Who literature, the podcast. No. <laughs> but Jason, what what did you think was the most successful part of it? I will be honest. I thought that I could just grab my 1976 book off the shelf, skim through the audio, and then just read the book, which is faster than listening to a four-hour collection of CDs. That was my secret plan for cramming for this podcast without doing a whole lot of preparation time. I was wrong because the audiobook always keeps you guessing because it jumps from 72 to 76 and it goes in sort of a random order and jumbles things around. So I couldn't just do the skimming. I had to listen to all three CDs. 
So I'm gonna I'm gonna side with you guys here that the the dramatization because I don't have the 72 book I had the PDF but I didn't start reading it until I was listening to the audio wondering where are these fictionalized blurbs coming from. That's when I opened my 1972 PDF. So this is stuff that I'm hearing for the first time and it was neat hearing all of this stuff told in universe the Doctor's trial the exile to Earth the Brigadier's increasingly frustrated attempts to account for what the Doctor is doing to Unit's budget. That was all brand new material for me, even though it's coming from text that is 51 years old. So that was the biggest revelation. Yeah, it's, it's worth saying, although I've not, isn't, this isn't a particular favourite of mine, I don't think, but um, it is worth saying that, as with all of these, the production is really, really good. You know, the... Mm-hmm. Like, you know, just pinch yourself moment. We you know we've got Dan Starkey, John, John Colshaw, uh, Jeffrey Beavers, Katie Manning, Louise Jameson, and Maureen O'Brien reading. So, I mean, this is happy. We are incredibly lucky to have that. Um, David Darlington is worth saying, who is, I don't know, from Big Finish Days, um, as always, is a brilliant uh, sound effects track, which uh, a lot of it sounds like it's come from the Doc 2 sound effects LP, which is exactly right. So the, the music, the background, the atmos, the all, all the sound stuff is is absolutely on point. So yeah, that's one thing. Like you, I never doubt the production of this at all. Like there's, you know, you're in safe hands with these, so that's never a worry. And my, my question is this time is just like, quite who's it for? But the actual production of this thing is gorgeous. And that's a point in favor of the target novelization audiobooks because number one, you have a lot of readers who are either not with us anymore or, or who are retired. So you have books that were audiobooks that were narrated by Carol and John, narrated by Elizabeth Sladen, narrated by William Russell, who is now retired, narrated by Richard Franklin, who is now retired. So when you're listening to the 20-year-old audiobook range, you are listening to voices from the past who just gave us tremendous delight and are not able to do this anymore. And the sound design is the same on all of those audio CDs, going back to that first William Russell 1960s novelization tin the care they put into matching the musical cues to the text, the target book, there's a different theme, a different background theme for each of the novelizations. So you you really never hear the same melody twice. And I like Conrad's point. Yes, there are audio cues from 1960s stories on the CDs for the making of that. I was trying to guess, Oh, that's from that story. That's from the war games. That's from this. That's from that. So I definitely enjoy, enjoyed that. So anything else that we want to say going around the table about the making of 1972 or the monster book 1975 or the making of 1976? I, if nothing else, it's a snapshot of where um, the chronicling of Doctor Who really began, sort of more than anything. And I think maybe in the 60th year, that is a a justifiable thing to say, look, this is where where we started. This was the information that we had, our generation had when we were growing up. And look how far we've come from this. But you could make Doctor Who from the instructions given to you by Malcolm Hulk and Terence mm-hmm. Dix. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. I think these are, are the prototypes. And I think everything sort of subsequently has tried to emulate what these did, but they did it in 128 pages, you know, and it, it's, it's incredible how much is crammed into, into both of these books. 
Denise? Yep, definitely. Um, definitely agree with Cy there. It's, um, it's concise. It tells you everything you need to know about Doctor Who up until that point in time. It's just how it is, you know. Terence Dix saw the series very, very clearly. He understood it completely inside and out. God bless Uncle Terry, as they say. Um, and yeah, a lot of the books that have come after, particularly around the 20th anniversary and beyond, it's, they were big and they were glossy and they had lots of pretty pictures in them. But, you know, information density not as great as these slim novel, slim little standard size or a little greater than standard size target books. Although, of course, they are also plugging target books. You can read more about this if you read Doctor Who. And, uh, <laughs> which is fair enough, you know. Mm -hmm. it's, there's publicity in there as well. But yeah, it's how it should be done. And um, if they'd had YouTube back then, would he have done a YouTube video on how to make Doctor Who instead? Who knows? <laughs> Yeah, and for me, I think um, while while I'm sort of lukewarm on this as an audio release, the the making of books, both of them, I think are absolutely astonishing. They're absolute bibles for Doctor Who. I have no uh, hesitation in saying that had these books come out, Doctor Who would not be on television now because all those people who've made it from 2000 onwards just wouldn't know this stuff. Um, so I would say, uh, by all means, get the audio, but definitely just go on eBay and try and get these making of books because they are invaluable. And I think they'll make an interesting it'll be an interesting bookend that these are the first How to Make Doctor Who with if there's a return of Doctor Who Confidential or whatever supporting behind-the-scenes stuff we get with the new series. I mean, this is where it started, and I think the new stuff will be a good bookend to that. So it's, it's really, really interesting stuff. I'd get the books. Terence Dix had said, I think in the making of Horror of Fang Rock, that if you wanted to research a topic, the first place to go were children's books because that would give you all the information in a user-friendly format. So when he was trying to research lighthouses for Horror of Fang Rock, he went to a children's book on lighthouses, and he ended up turning out one of the best classic series stories ever. This is Terrence Dix's children's reference book, not for lighthouses, but for the making of TV. Somebody could probably make a Doctor Who serial about a haunted television production, <laughs> using this children's reference book as a guide for how to make TV. And because Terence and Malcolm Hulk were the two most prolific novelization writers of the mid-70s, yes, they plug their own novelizations quite a bit, especially in the 1976 edition. There are 27 novelizations and more to come, and you can read these monsters in this book, and you can read that monster in that book. And that's Terence and Malcolm certainly uh, cross-referencing to uh, increase their book sales. <laughs> Perfect. All right, guys, unfortunately, uh, like a 128-page book that ends too quickly, this episode is coming to a conclusion. <laughs> Going around the table, where can we find you guys? Sai, I know that you do a podcast pretty much every single day of your life. So this is probably <laughs> your... <laughs> it's not true. This is the first one in weeks. <laughs> uh no, well, uh, the best place to find me is on Twitter, really. So I'm at Cy underscore heart. Um, and you'll find um, that I will plug every podcast that I'm on 
to death on there. So that's probably the best way to find me and on multiple episodes of Trap One. Cy was most recently on Doctor Who Literature in episode 69, The Leisure Hive, and will be coming up again within the next couple of months. Mm-hmm. Denise, and looking forward were... to it immensely. It's a very good book that you have. I won't say which one, but you've got a very good book coming up next. I have. Denise, you were last on Doctor Who Literature in episode 66, State of Decay, one of my favorite episodes. Uh, where can we find you elsewhere? Okay, well, I'm mainly on Twitter at, at cupoftea69. I'm hanging in there, you know, because, um, I mean, I know bad stuff is going on on Twitter, but while I've, I've got a nice timeline, I've got a Twitter family, you know, we've got an, it's a nice place to live for me still. And while it continues to be that while the Nazis are off down the other end of the street, then, yeah, I'm going to stay on Twitter. But I'm also on Mastodon uh, Toot Community as Denisery. And um, there's there's a link to my truly dreadful poetry blog on my Twitter bio. So um, that's where you find me. Yeah, I'm also on on Denise's street. I'm still I'm still living on Twitter Street, at <laughs> Hair of the Found underscore that weird dark house that's all boarded up at the end of the road that no one knows quite what goes in on in there. That the kids throw that the kids throw stones at. That's my house. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm on that. I think I went to the pub on on Saturday to celebrate the birthdays of Cy Hart and Pete Lambert, Trap Oneers, um, and I sort of came out with a couple of possible podcasts podcast invitations so i'll probably popping up on a couple of other podcasts quite soon so i'm looking forward to that wonderful conrad was most recently on doctor who literature in episode 75 meglos and i received a photo from jim sangster last week of jim sangster and conrad hanging out and i was very 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 jealous saying i'll be right there don't go anywhere Oh, that was very very awesome jim sangster and he's got I, i know from having a chat with jim over a couple of lemonades that uh he he's been got some very exciting plans for doctor literature as well he's contributing a lot of kind of incredible stuff um wow he is a lovely lovely man he is a lovely man and very clever yeah he just submitted two audio essays for me last night for doctor who literature you'll hear one on the upcoming warriors of the deep episode coming up on Sunday, the 23rd of July. So stay tuned to Doctor Who Literature, which is your clearinghouse for all things Jason, Conrad, Cy, Denise, and Jim Sangster, who was not in this episode, but may as well have been, for as much as we're talking about him. You can find all episodes of Trap One on your podcatcher of choice, as well as our official website, trapone.podbean.com. You can find us on Twitter at trapone underscore I am on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels. You can also find Doctor Who Literature at um, anchor.fm slash Doctor Who Lit, D-O-C-T-O-R, Who Lit. I am branching out to Mastodon. I am at Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels, at mastodon.social, but it's not very active yet because the Mastodon community just does not yet have the level of volume that twitter does but we will keep you posted on all things related to the trap one podcast and next week a different panel will come to you discussing a new item of merchandise in the worlds of doctor who Mm -hmm. thank you for listening and have a great night
Bye. 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 Honest to Doctor Who by the Reverend John D. Beckworth, AKC, Chaplain to the Bishop of Edmonton, from The Making of Doctor Who by Malcolm Hulk and Terence Dix, 1972. Man's interest in the vast universe of time and space, out beyond this planet Earth on which he finds himself, is as old as mankind itself. Prehistoric man knew that the sun made his crops grow and the moon influenced the tides and he was very respectful to them both. The Greeks and the Romans made up stories about the stars and planets and throughout the Old Testament you can read how men searched for God up in the heavens. Christians, taught by Jesus Christ, believe that God is the creator of all that is in the heavens above and the earth beneath. That the maker of all things is the God of time and space, ever present in the here and now. Jesus taught his followers that God can be found and seen in everything around them, and incidentally, it is no good searching for God way out in space if we don't recognise him in our familiar surroundings. If we ask, what has religion got to do with science fiction and space research? The answer is, everything. Space exploration teaches us more and more about the wonders of God's creation beyond this planet Earth. It helps some people to understand and believe in God more than ever because it helps them to see that there is so much more in the universe that could only be planned and made by someone greater than man himself. To this someone, they give the name God. Science fiction, on the other hand, is the invention of man's imagination. In the case of Doctor Who, the writers of the serial... And it is fiction. It is, in some cases, based partly on facts, but largely it is a made-up story. Writers of science fiction are always fond of introducing beings from another planet, usually with a greater intelligence than man. From a religious point of view, such creatures may or may not exist, but that does not necessarily affect belief in God. Certainly in the Bible and in Jewish and Christian belief, there is another form of animate creation apart from man, called angels. We could perhaps call them the first spacemen, and there are some people who think that the whole idea of angels is based on an ancient visit from outer space by spacemen from another planet. Equal to modern science fiction stories, there are accounts in the Bible of strange happenings affecting time and space. One interesting observation has already been mentioned in this book on page 107 concerning certain references in the book of Ezekiel. There is also the book of Joshua, chapter 10, where we read that the sun and the moon stood still for one whole day. At that time, man thought it was the sun which moved around the earth. If this story is based on facts and not fiction, it would mean that something happened in the universe during the lifetime of man which altered the normal spin of the earth much stranger than any science fiction story. Some scientists say that this is something which could possibly have happened, and others not. What is true, though, is that men have always been interested in the unknown. They have always wanted to find out about it, and, at the same time, being frightened by it. Science fiction stimulates both this fascination and fear. Whilst keeping both within acceptable limits, Doctor Who feeds this insatiable curiosity. There is also, in the Doctor Who serials, a recognisable morality, a normal recognition of good and evil. Doctor Who, as a character, is essentially a good man, although even he has had his setbacks and the situation often hangs in the balance. 
Good, in the end, triumphs over evil. And this is perhaps the most important connection between Doctor Who and religion. The recognition that there is one basic truth in God's creation, and this is that the most valuable and worthwhile thing is goodness, and that though that is often marred and spoiled by man, it cannot ultimately be destroyed. Evil only has the power that man gives it, but goodness has the power of God. (laughs) 